begin with a prayer in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so I believe this is our seventh class. Uh, topic is matrimony. So I begin this with a little fear and trembling with my wife sitting right there watching me and judging me. So, uh, but we're talking about the sacrament of, of matrimony tonight. And um, we're going to try to integrate it with everything else that we've talked about so far, particularly with the covenant. Um, and how it interacts with the other sacraments. All right, so to begin with, um, we're created in the image and likeness of God, and it is through the, the sacrament of matrimony that we most fully manifest this reality that we're created in the image and likeness of God, because, you know, the two become one, and thereby three, you know, through children. Um, and so through matrimony, we imitate God <clears throat> in his creative power, right, through the, the procreation of children. So as we've talked with the other sacraments, let me deal with uh, some of the more mundane and, you know, uh, uh, formal aspects to the sacrament before we get back into the Old Testament and New Testament uh, theological background for the sacrament. So in many ways, the, the sacrament of matrimony is the oddball out of all the other sacraments. You know, it, uh, Frank Sheed in one of his books calls it the surprising sacrament. Uh, for one thing, it doesn't deal with just one person. All the other sacraments, you know, you receive them as an individual. You know, you're, you're baptized as an individual. You're confirmed. Um, you receive the Eucharist. You know, even if you have holy orders, which is a sacrament of the community, one individual receives the sacrament. Right? But with matrimony, it's actually two people receiving the sacrament simultaneously. And the other odd thing about it is the minister of the sacrament. It's not somebody else. It's the two spouses. They are the ministers of the sacrament. They give the sacrament to each other. Okay, So it really does stand out uh, in that regard. Now in terms of the elements, the matter and form that we've been talking about throughout this, uh, the matter is the, the two. Uh, a Christian man and a Christian woman, right? That's the matter for the sacrament. Um, and the form are the wedding vows that are taken. Okay. Now, there are four uh, general requirements for a valid marriage that the church talks about. One of them has some things underneath of it, but the first one are spouses, a man and woman that are free to marry, right? They're, they're free to marry, they don't have any external impediments to the marriage, right? Um, the second one is that they freely exchange their consent. So no shotgun weddings, right? Uh, so they have to go into this freely. And they have to have the proper intention, okay? And under that heading, there are three things which signify the proper intention. They have to marry and have the intention to marry for life, right? No temporary marriages or trial marriages. Uh, they have to be the intent to be faithful, right? If they've already got a girlfriend or boyfriend going into the marriage, 
that invalidates it, right? Uh, and then they have to be open to children. Okay, all three of those fall under the category of intention. And finally, uh, for the sacrament, for Catholics, they have to be uh, the consent given in the proper canonical form. And all of these things are listed under canon law for, for the church. Okay, everybody good so far? Let's dig into the scriptures then, the, the Old Testament uh, for this. Now there's two different aspects of this, like with uh, many of the sacraments that we've talked about. We have the, the pattern um, that we see, especially in the Old Testament, and then we have the reality of the sacrament itself. But with matrimony, it's a little bit different because there's also, the, the pattern is actually at a certain level the more significant thing, right? And, which is kind of backwards the way we normally see the sacrament because the pattern for this is Jesus and the church, right? That is the true marriage. And the marriage between individual couples patterns after that. Okay, and, and we'll see that Paul makes that clear in the book of Ephesians. We'll get to that when we get to the New Testament. But I want to talk about the initial uh, form of marriage that we see all the way back in Genesis. And when Jesus talks about marriage, he goes back to this to, to deal with this. So this is chapter 1. We'll deal with two things, one in chapter 1 and one in chapter 2 of Genesis. So the first one is Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So first page, right? Shouldn't be too hard to find. All right, chapter 1, verse 27. This should all sound familiar to everyone. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves upon the earth. Okay, let's deal with the first statement first. Uh, we're created in the image and likeness of God, right? We've heard that a thousand times. You know, we all have a, a general idea about what that means, right? The, the main thing is in the spiritual sense for the individual that we are created with intellect and will, right? The two great capacities within the soul because God is pure spirit and a, a spiritual person has those two capacities, intellect and will. It's the thing we share with God, also with the angels, even though God and the angels don't have bodies. So our soul is in the image and likeness of God. But within ourselves, we have this three-part capacity, husband, wife, and child, which images God in his very essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay. But on that note, notice what it says here. Right, something that kind of gets a little bit lost as people tend to focus on the idea of image. It says we were created in the image and image of God. He created I'm sorry, let me back up a little bit. God so God created man in his own image, right? Man. In his in the image of God, he created him. Right? But then there's the next part, right? Male and female, he created them. The two are side by side, but they're given as equivalents, right? So both man 
is in the image and likeness of God, and man and woman together are in the image and likeness of God. It's the idea of the covenant is already established here, that God is creating man and woman, at least the initial man and woman, in a state of unity. They're being created already married, as it were, okay? Then we get the next statement, which is, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth, right? But before that, it says God bless them. The blessing and the idea of being fruitful and multiply are, again, almost synonymous. And as you read through it, you see that blessing and being fruitful and multiply really do mean the same thing from a, a biblical sense. Okay, um, for example, when David becomes king and he's going to Jerusalem, one of the first things he does is he gets the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, and he's going to take it to Jerusalem where he's going to found his kingdom, right? But before he gets there, he has a stopover in this little town where he holds up with this guy's family. And the idea here is that because it was there, and this patterns after uh, Mary, who is the new Ark of the Covenant because she carries the word of God in flesh, she goes to Elizabeth, right? And Elizabeth is blessed her cousin, because she has John the Baptist, right? Well, when the Ark of the Covenant, it's the Old Testament version of, you know, that which contains the Word of God, the, the tablets of stone, when that comes to this family's house and stays there for three months, the same amount of time that uh, Mary stayed with Elizabeth, they were blessed, it says, right? And the result was they had babies, right? So blessing and being fruitful and multiplied go together, okay, which is tied in with marriage. All right, let's go to chapter 2. And remember we said uh, that a lot of the scholars talk about two different creation accounts and how I proposed, this is based on uh, Scott Hahn's uh, theological interpretation of this, that you know you don't really see two different creation accounts. What you see is the creation of the world in general, and then the covenant creation of man in chapter 2, right? So it's God in his, you know, all power, you know, terrifying deity, right? And then we have the intimate portrayal of God creating man and woman in chapter 2. So it's, it's two versions of the same thing. Now, in chapter 2, we have the details about how he creates Eve from from Adam and that's what I want to focus in on so this is chapter 2 starting in verse 18 then the Lord God said it is not good that the man should be alone I will make him a helper fit for him so remember in creation we hear this and it was good and it was good God created light and it was good right God created the fish and the birds it was good everything was good and this is the first time we see God saying it is not good so it really stands out. And he says, I will make him a helper fit for him. Verse 19, so out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Giving something a name is a sign of authority and, and power. Remember, man was given dominion over the world, right? But you know, what's going on here? God says he will make a helper for man, then brings all the animals to, to man, right? 
It's a little strange. Verse 20. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every beast of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper fit for him. Did God really think that he would find somebody appropriate among all the animals? No, God knows what he's doing. But what he wants is for man to see that none of these are going to fit the bill. That what he needs is something different entirely. Verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and clings to his wife and they become one flesh. Again, that's a, a quotation that Jesus is going to use when he's talking about marriage. So, uh, one, one other little aside here. The, the, ver, the word for woman and man, in the Hebrew, man is ish, and woman is isha, right? So, it, it's like a play on the same word, just like man and woman, right? It's, it works in both languages, right? Because the two are tied together. They have the same root. Um, now, what do we see here? In terms of the purpose of marriage to begin with, right? We, we see that played out in the passage from verse 1, or from chapter 1, and from chapter 2. The primary one, the one that is given in chapter 1, is to be fruitful and multiply, right? So the primary purpose, and this is based on uh, St. Thomas Aquinas's view on all this, which the church has, has backed up, that the primary purpose of marriage is the procreation of children, right? We don't continue as a human race unless we make children. That's simple, right? That's the primary purpose. The secondary purpose, or, yeah, the secondary purpose, uh, you would call fidelity or the good of the spouses, right? The unitive nature of, of marriage. And that we see uh, in the second one. This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You know, a helper, right? The fact that they form a community amongst themselves, right? And then the tertiary, the third part of this is actually the sacrament itself, according to St. Thomas, right? It's, it's actually the greatest part of it, but grace builds on nature. You have to have the natural components before you can have the grace of the sacrament, right? So that comes in third in terms of the purpose for marriage. Okay. Now, it's what else is interesting about this is right after this passage in chapter 2, what do we get? The serpent, right? We have the fall of man right after this. And it's tied in with the idea of marriage, okay? Because, you know, look at the language. Be fruitful and multiply. Well, what happened for the fall? Adam ate the forbidden fruit, right? Fruit, fruitful. Okay, it's all tied in. What we see here is a disruption of marriage at the very beginning, along with the temptation of the devil. Okay, it's involved, and you see, you know, the that play out. I mean, what was the curse for for Eve? You know, she has pain in childbirth. 
again, part of the original blessing, part of marriage itself. So all of this is tied in with the spouses. And, you know, the first trouble with marriage comes right at the very beginning. All right, the first challenges that we see are tied in with the fall of man. And that's played out, if you turn over to chapter 4, we begin to see things break down as society continues along. Because Adam and Eve, you know, Adam knew Eve, right? The idea of knowing is intimate relationship. Adam knew Eve and she bore a son, right? Cain. Remember the whole discussion about firstborns? Cain wasn't such a great firstborn, right? He had a younger brother, Abel. And he wasn't such a great older brother, was he? He ended up killing Abel. All right, so the aftermath of that, Cain gets cursed by God because of this. And so go to chapter 4, verse 17, and you'll see things play out along Cain's line. Right? And it talks about several generations leading down to the seventh generation after Adam, but the sixth generation after Cain. Right? Remember, six is always associated with things opposed to the covenant. Seven is the number of the covenant. Right? Seven means to swear an oath. You know, Shavah is the Hebrew word. Remember that when we talked about that several times? To swear an oath is synonymous with forming a covenant. All right, so Genesis 17, we see what plays, plays out with Cain. This is chapter 4, verse 17. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch, right? There's that whole idea of knowing again. So Enoch is, is Cain's uh, firstborn son, Adam's grandchild. And he built a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad was the father of Mahushael, and Mahushael the father of Methushael, and Methushael the father of Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. Boom. Something different right away, right? Lamech takes two wives. It's the first uh, example of polygamy here. And it's in Cain's line, right? Because it's under Cain's line and Cain's been cursed, gives you a little hint, maybe this isn't the way things are supposed to be, right? So let's read on just a little bit more here. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other Zillah. Ada bore Jabel, who was the father of those who dwell in tents and have cattle. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. And hearken to what I say. I have slain a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech, seventy-sevenfold. Not a nice guy, right? Yeah, this guy, I mean, Cain was jealous and killed his brother, but this guy is downright evil, okay? And look at his society. You know, there's, there's culture, there's cities, you know, it's... Uh, technological, you know, it's a lot like us, right? And so sex and violence are two of the prominent things in Lamech's culture, right? So 
And this is all set up by the initial phrase, he took two wives, right? So his line is showing how marriage is kind of falling apart. All right, so let's flip over to Genesis chapter 15 to Abram. This is before he becomes Abraham. We've talked about Abram before, future Abraham. You know, he received three promises in chapter 12, and those three promises are elevated to covenants in chapter 15, 17, and 22. 22 is the famous chapter where he's supposed to kill his son Isaac, but God stops him, you know, and um, that's the promise for a worldwide blessing, right? That's chapter 22. But back in 15, the first of these is the promise of land, which is elevated to a covenant, right? But along with that, you know, what's the good of land if he doesn't have people to populate it, right? So along with that is the promise of sons. And Abram's complaining about, you know, it's going to be some stranger who's going to be the inheritor of me. You know, O Lord, he says in verse 2, O Lord God, what will you give me for I continue childless and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And God responds in verse 4, this man shall not be your heir. Your own son shall be your heir. Right? So God promises that he will have a son. What's the problem? Well, Abraham and Sarah's wife are getting old. You know, the, the time of childbearing seems to be long past. You know? But God says it, so it must be true. The problem is Sarah and Abram get a little antsy for God to fulfill his promises. Right? We get to chapter 16, and they're waiting around, and no kids. And so they decide to take matters into their own hand. Right? Sarah gets uh, her maidservant, Hagar, to go in and sleep with Abram. Right? Not a good move. Okay? The child is Ishmael. Right? He's the father of all the Arabs. Hmm, Arabs and Israelites. I don't think they get along too well today, do they? Right? And this is thousands of years later. And it all begins back here. Because Abram wasn't following what God had laid down for what marriage is supposed to be. Okay? And we see it played out in the next chapter dramatically. The next chapter, 17 is also where the next part of the promise gets elevated to a covenant. This is where his name becomes great, right? The promise that he will have a dynasty coming after him. Okay, what's the sign of the covenant that all Jews have that is given here where Abram, what is it? Somebody just said it. Circumcision, Circumcision right? Abram is 99 years old when he gets the, the covenant of circumcision. And what gets cut off in circumcision, right? Right there where kids are made, right? What did he just do? He just had a kid when he wasn't supposed to. So it's the sign of the covenant, which is a blessing in itself. But the particular sign it is, is a constant reminder of Abram's screw up, right? <laughs> Every time he has to go to the bathroom, he looks down and it's like, ooh, Ishmael, ah, <laughs> 99 years old. Fortunately, kids get it done on the eighth day. Whew. So 
you don't have to remember it, but I'm sure Abram remembered it dramatically from here on out. So again, you know, he screwed up. And then he has sons. Isaac stands out because, you know, he's, he's not as firstborn technically. I mean, Ishmael was. But Isaac does things the right way, right? He has one wife and he has two kids. And by and large, based on all the patriarchs, Isaac's life was pretty smooth, right? When you, when you think about it. I mean, he had a few trials, but nothing dramatic. But when you get to his son Jacob, ooh, boy, you talk about soap opera. Jacob's life and his kid's life was a serious soap opera, right? Did Jacob have one wife? No. Remember, he had his favorite, uh, Rachel, that he wanted to marry, right? But he has this uh, relative Laban who tricks him into marrying Leah, the older one, right? So Jacob wakes up the next morning after he's married and realizes that's not the girl I thought I was marrying, <laughs> you know? And so he ends up having kids with her and then uh, he has kids with her maid, her concubine. And then he eventually gets to marry Rachel, has kids with her and then kids with her concubine, right? So two wives and two concubines, 12 kids, and there's nothing but sibling rivalry between them, right? Because all this plays out among the wives, right? It's, it's like a political mess. Who's in authority? Who's the, the wife in charge of the house, right? Who, you know, who is who, you know? And it really plays out. And not just with this. When you look at Israel, when it comes in to the promised land, there's all sorts of infighting between the different tribes, okay? And in fact, um, let's, let's deal with that here in just a minute. Now, eventually, we're going to get kings in Israel, okay? And one of the things that, is, that God warns them about, you don't have to turn to this, just listen. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, God doesn't want them to have kings, right? But the, the Israelites, they want to be just like the other kids in the neighborhood, right? They want to, you know, have all the toys that the other kids do. And what do they see with all the other kings and all the other nations in the Middle East? They all have kings. Well, God's supposed to be their king. God is the one who is head of the Israelite family, right? But they say, no, please give us a king. And so in Deuteronomy, God warns them, if you have a king, this is what you're going to get. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, verse 14. It says, when you come to the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around about me, you may indeed set a, as king over you, him whom the Lord your God will choose. Uh, but then he warns him about three things. In verse 16, only he must not multiply horses. Horses in terms of an army, right? Don't have a huge standing army. The middle one, number 17, verse 17, and he shall not multiply wives, right? Very early on, God warns, you know, don't multiply wives. And then the final one, uh, 
nor shall he greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. So don't accumulate a huge army, don't multiply your wives, and don't accumulate a huge amount of wealth, right? We have the first king, Saul, was a disaster, replaced by King David, who was man after God's own heart, right? And King David has a son, Solomon, Solomon the wise, right? But Solomon falls on hard times because he ticks off each one of these three things. He builds a huge army. He has untold amounts of gold. If you look at the, the amount of gold that's delivered to him every year from taxation, it's incredible. Um, and finally, he had 300 wives and 700 concubines. I think he broke that one. He shattered that one to pieces, right? But... That was from political alliances, okay? Wives are relations with other, uh, other countries, right? So there's three other countries he forms alliances with by marrying their daughters and other such of the royalty. And then the concubines are city-states, right? That represents his alliances, foreign alliances. But he just falls apart after this and... Um, Let's see. In 1 Kings 12, no, I'm sorry, in 1 Kings 11, it talks about everything that happens to him. This is from 1 Kings 11, uh, verse 4. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Right? It's a little flashback to Adam and Eve. Right? So he's listening to these wives and falling into temptation here. So he was old, and his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And what happens in chapter 12, the next chapter, Solomon dies... And the 12 tribes who were united with Solomon, all of a sudden they fall apart. The 10 northern tribes separate from the two southern tribes. You now have a divided nation because of Solomon's sin through his marriages. Right? They, they stack one on top of the other. Okay? It's through his infidelity that his children end up breaking apart. The 12 tribes now become 10 and 2. The northern tribes, by the way, if you're reading through the Bible and, and you get confused about who's who because you see Israel and Judah and it seems like they're talking about two different people, it's because they are. From this point on, you have to pay attention to the language. Whenever it talks about Israel, almost always it's talking about the ten northern tribes that separated from the southern tribes, right? And Jake, or Judah becomes the, the symbol for the two southern tribes, the tribe of Judah, which is centered around Jerusalem. Benjamin's the other tribe uh, that's down there along with Judah. But from there on out, you have like two streams of story, Israel and then Judah, Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the Assyrians in uh, 722 BC come and conquer the 10 northern tribes, right? But it all goes back to Jacob with his uh, two wives and two concubines and the 12 kids that suffer from this. 
and goes and carries on the, the pain and suffering from that carry on through the generations. All right, so again, God is showing us in the Old Testament the negative aspects of marriage when it's not done correctly. Okay, well, what about the positive? Well, it's coming. <laughs> All right, uh, I want to mention just a couple other places. We've been talking about individual marriage here, but at the beginning we talked about God and Israel in this covenant relationship, which is depicted as a marital bond between God and the people. And so this is, you see this explicitly in several different places. Uh, I want to go to one place in Isaiah chapter 54, where it's really explicitly stated here. This is Isaiah chapter 54, verse 5. And this, by the way, is right after the suffering servant song in 53, where it's the, the servant of the Lord. And when you read through it, it's like you're there at Calvary. You see all these different things that remind you of Jesus and his suffering, suffering for us and to take away our sins. Uh, like a lamb led to a slaughter, he opened not his mouth those types of things. By his stripes we are healed. That all takes place in chapter 53 of Isaiah. And then chapter 54, we see the, the fruits of this suffering. So Isaiah 54, verse 5, For your maker, God, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. And you go into chapter uh, 61 of Isaiah, and it just goes on and on about this. Uh, then let's flip over to Ezekiel. Let's just keep going to the right. Uh, about 30, 40 pages, I guess. No, about 60 pages. No, more like 80. All right. This is Ezekiel chapter 16. It's talking about the relationship between God and Israel. And this is uh, verse 8. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 8. And this is God talking about Israel in this passage. When I passed by you again and looked upon you, Behold, you are at the age for love, and I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Right? That's a, a euphemism uh, referring to sexual relationships in, in Hebrew. Right? There's lots of euphemisms that they use. Right? Covering your nakedness is, is one of those. Uh, yes, I pledged myself to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Right? So it's depicting Israel as this young girl coming to marital age and God is this spouse coming and marrying her and forming a covenant, right? It's a spousal covenant. Remember what a covenant is. It forms kinship bonds, right? Two people who are not, married or not related to each other come together. They form a covenant. They swear an oath. And now they are related. The two become one. But the problem is verse 15. Slide over to verse 15. And it says, But you trusted in your beauty and played the harlot. 
because of your renown and lavished your harlotries on any passerby, right? Again, this is talking about the infidelity of ancient Israel in terms of their idolatry, about going after other gods. That's the metaphor that is used to describe how they you know, worshipped other gods, okay? And they betrayed the Lord. And this really comes to a head in the minor prophet Hosea. Uh, Hosea, which flipped to the right, it's right after Ezekiel. After Ezekiel is Daniel, and then the minor prophets. There's 12 minor prophets depicting various uh, times in ancient Israel's uh, life. And this is actually one of the oldest ones. Um, And Hosea is like a living icon of this whole situation because God commands him to marry a prostitute, right? Whose name is Gomer, of all things. Can't help but thinking of Gomer Pyle. (laughs) You'll never forget that either. But uh, he marries her as a living symbol. And, And you see this a lot with prophets. A lot of prophets, they take symbolic actions, right? Like Jeremiah taking... Uh, a clay pot and breaking it and saying, this is you, Israel. You're like this clay pot and God's going to shatter you. You know, talking about the Babylonians coming in, right? They use these symbolic actions. Well, Hosea's entire life becomes a symbolic action because he, he marries this prostitute at God's command and tells everybody, this is what Israel's relationship with God is like. You know, you're his spouse and you're betraying him over and over again. But there is hope for the future. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, talking about future times, Hosea says, "In In that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. Baal was, uh, was a god. It was one of the gods that the, the Hebrews... Uh, worship one of the Canaanite gods, but the word itself also denoted a concubine, right? A mistress, right? So God is saying, in that day, says the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, right? So the, the relationship will be restored, is the idea here. Verse 17, for I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth and they shall be mentioned by name no more. And I will make for you a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the creeping things of the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. And I will espouse you forever. I will espouse you in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will espouse you in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord, right? He's talking about the end times. You know, after all this infidelity, God will still be faithful, right? And he will come and fix things and establish his covenant, the new covenant. And where does the new covenant begin? Where does Jesus say the words about the covenant? at the Last Supper. This is the blood of the covenant, right? So let's, let's get to the New Testament here. So flip over, 
keep going to the right, to John, chap- the Gospel of John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, right? chapter 2. Jesus' first sign in, in John's Gospel, there aren't that many miracles, and John doesn't call them miracles, he calls them signs, right? because they're more than just a flashy show of power by God. They signify something. Okay? And his first sign takes place at a wedding. Right? And the only two people that are there that are mentioned by name are Jesus and his mother. Right? Who the early church fathers always talked about is the new Adam and the new Eve. Okay? So the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we have the new Adam and the new Eve at a wedding. Right? So let's look at this and see what we can find out from this. This is John chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Ah, okay. And remember, I I think we've talked about this in this class. John's gospel begins in the beginning, right? So it patterns after Genesis, right? All the more reason to see the significance of the wedding here. Um, And then... Genesis, we have the creation in six days and then the the hallowing of the seventh day, the sanctifying of the seventh day, right? And so we have this series of of time references here in John's gospel where he says the next day, the next day, and the next day, three of these, right? So if there's a first day, that third next day would signify the fourth day. You begin on one day, the next day signifies the second day. So there's two days accounted for already. And then two more next days is two more, so that's four, right? Chapter two begins on the third day. Four and three is seven. Seven means creation and the covenant. And what's happening with this covenant? A wedding. Okay, see how it all fits together. On the third day, there was a marriage at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. So Mary's mentioned first here. Jesus also was invited to the marriage with his disciples, right? We don't know how many. It's, it's you know, they're just kind of going to the background here. Verse 3, when the wine failed, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, O woman, what have you to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The implication here is when the hour does come, Jesus will be providing wine. Right? It's not that I can't do anything about it. It's that my hour has not yet come. If my hour had come, of course I would be providing wine. But my hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She knows that he's going to do what she asked him to do. Why? Because he's a good Jewish boy. He's going to do whatever his mother tells him. Right? The commandments. Honor your father and mother. What did Jesus do better than any other Jew who ever lived? Follow the commandments. Right? So he's going to follow her lead. Verse 6. Now six stone jars were standing there for the Jewish rites of purification. Notice that water for purification. Right? It's pointing to baptism. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons a huge amount, right? It's 180 gallons that he's going to turn into wine. 
It's going to be a good party. <laughs> Verse 7, Jesus said to them, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. He said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the steward of the feast. So they took it. When the steward of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the steward of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. Right? Notice that. He manifests his glory by doing this. And who's the last person that's mentioned? It's the bridegroom. Well, who is the bridegroom? It doesn't say. Right? But let's flip over to chapter 3, and we'll see something kind of amazing here with John the Baptist. This is John the Baptist. Um, and it's talking about Jesus after this whole episode, and John was baptizing, and Jesus and the disciples or the disciples of Jesus baptized, not Jesus himself. And we get John speaking here in verse 27. This is chapter 3, verse 27 of John's Gospel. John answered, No one can receive anything except what is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John came to testify to the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, Jesus. Verse 29 notice the language he who has the bride is the bridegroom the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now full he must increase but i must decrease john sees himself as the friend of the bridegroom right the best man okay who's the bridegroom jesus where was jesus just a minute ago at a wedding, right? Jesus sanctifies marriage by his very presence. The church has always seen the wedding at Cana as the elevation of this natural institution of marriage to the level of a sacrament, where grace is given through the sacrament because of his presence, right? And because of who he is and his relationship to the people of God as the bridegroom, okay? Because this is, there's two main metaphors that Paul uses to talk about Jesus and his relationship to the church. You know, Jesus is the bride and the church is, or Jesus is the bridegroom and the church is the bride, right? But he's also the head and the church is the body. Okay? The head and body imagery. The two become one flesh. Right? They're, they're related ideas. All right, so we're running low on time here, so let's see what I can do to kind of flesh this out. Let me at least make one or show one example here of how Jesus backs this idea up. Uh, go to, to Mark chapter 2. So flip back. This is the only time I think we'll be going backwards here. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 19. It's just two verses here, but they're important.
And he's talking to John's disciples, which kind of backs up the previous passage. Jesus is talking to their to John's disciples, John the Baptist. Or actually, he's talking to the Pharisees about John's disciples. In verse 18, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus' answer is, is very telling, especially for people who have been following John the Baptist and heard John the Baptist say that. Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Right? Jesus sees himself as the bridegroom. Now, any Jew who knows anything about the Old Testament, which most of them would know a great deal, would recognize this idea of, you know, the bridegroom and the bride in the Old Testament as a relationship between God and the people of God. And here is Jesus taking the place of God in that metaphor, right? He is the bridegroom. You know, that's enough to get people to pull their hair out and try to, to stone him right there. Right? He didn't make friends very easily among the many of the devout Jews. But he also points forward to when he's going to be crucified, when the bridegroom will be taken away. Now, actually, I lied. We're going to go backwards one more time. Because Jesus addresses marriage itself directly in Matthew 19. So we'll take a quick look at this and then we'll kind of wrap everything else up in terms of how it all fits together. In Matthew chapter 19, um, the Pharisees try to trap Jesus. One of these little word problems or, you know, they, they try to catch him using the law to try to put him in this impossible situation so that they can have something to condemn him with. But it never works out because Jesus knows the law better than they do. And so their attack on him is about marriage. So let's just begin in the, in the beginning of the chapter here, verse nine, chapter 19, verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. All right, that's important as well because beyond the Jordan, that's the territory of Herod. And Herod was famous because he killed John the Baptist at this point. Why did he kill John the Baptist? Because he was in a bad marriage with his brother's wife. Remember? Right? So Herodias, uh, Herod's wife, you know, demanded, you know, his daughter Salome to, to dance and got her to request John the Baptist's head. Right? And we're clued into that with that phrase beyond the Jordan because that's where it all takes place. Right? They're very specific here in the text. Matthew wants you to remember that. Beyond the Jordan. Judea, beyond the Jordan, that's where Herod was. That's where John the Baptist was baptizing. So you keep all that connected here. And Herod in this illicit marriage, and that was the reason John lost his head because he condemned them for it. Verse 2, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him. 
Remember? It's not because they wanted to know something. They wanted to have some reason to condemn him. They tested him. Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? Right? And there's the trap. Right? Because in the Old Covenant, it wasn't for any cause. You could divorce your wife in the Old Covenant, and Jesus is going to address that, but it wasn't for any cause. The reason they say any cause is because of Herod. Right? They're trying to get Jesus to to say no, not for any cause, and, and then have something to condemn him with Herod for. In verse 4, he answered, He answered, Have you not read that he who made them from the beginning made them male and female? That's a little slap in the face here. Have you not read? You know this thing called the Old Testament? You know, the beginning book, Genesis? You know, have you heard of that, Pharisees? Right? A little slap in the face to them. Have you not read? In the beginning, God, in the beginning, made them male and female, and said, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Right? We've read that just a little while ago. So he answers a question with a question. Verse 6 So they are no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let no man put asunder. Right? So he takes the feet right out of their argument. Right? And doesn't even talk about Moses. And but they bring it up. Then they said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? He said to them, For your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for unchastity and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So Jesus is restoring going back to the original idea of marriage. Okay, And so why did Moses really allow that? Uh, well, the ancient rabbis, and this is backed up with Thomas Aquinas, you know, they, they talk about the wise lawgiver will allow lesser evils to prevent greater ones. Right? Well, what was the greater evil they were trying to prevent? Well, if it was death to us part, you know, it didn't take much for people back then to figure out, well, let's get out of it by killing my wife, right? Wife murder. That was the thing that they were trying to prevent. Remember, this is a, a primitive society where people had been, you know, enslaved in, in pagan territory. So, you know, it was a little bit more like the Wild West back then, you know, than society as we know it today. <laughs> So he connects back to the original concept of man and woman. Right. So uh, Paul ties all this together. And just listen here. And let me finish with two passages. Paul in the book of Ephesians talks a lot about marriage. Ephesians really talks about the church. And through the church, he talks about marriage. Okay. And he gives a, a long discussion about the responsibilities that man and wife have with each other, you know, husband and wives, especially in chapter 5, you know, the responsibilities of wives to husbands and to husbands to wives. And after all of that, he finishes um, with the quote from Genesis that we just read. This is chapter 5, verse 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, 
and I mean in reference to Christ and the church. Right? So Christ and the church is the marriage by which all marriages uh, take their shape and form. Okay, that is the true marriage, and the marriages that we have in this life are shadows of that. Okay, that's the original, and what we have are images of that marriage. And we see that played out. Remember, we were back in Genesis. Genesis began with a marriage. You know, the Bible itself begins with a marriage, and it ends with a marriage. And we see this played out in the book of Revelation. So we'll finish up with looking at the true marriage, right? And it's tied in with the Eucharist, too. Because what is the Eucharist? It's the establishment of the covenant. And as we said before, covenants need to be renewed. And for husbands and wives, it's renewed every time they embrace in the marriage bed, right? But for the church and Christ, that renewal takes place at Mass, the hour, when the hour has come. And so we see in chapter 19, and by the way, we're used to the word Alleluia. We hear it all the time, right? When the New Testament, it only occurs in one place, and that's here in the book of Revelation in chapter 19. So let me read a little bit of this for you here. After this, I heard what seemed to be the mighty voices of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for his judgments are true and just, and he has judged the great harlot who corrupted the earth with her fornication. The great harlot, by the way, is Old Testament Jerusalem, right? That's the harlot. You look at other scholars, they'll say, oh, no, it was, it was ancient Rome, right? Ancient Rome does, has nothing to do with the covenant and with ancient Israel, okay? It doesn't fit in here at all. The harlot in the Old Testament, well, Hosea makes that real clear. It was Israel. And so out with the old, in with the new. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. The servants there being the prophets. All the prophets died in Jerusalem, Jesus points out. Verse 3, verse three Once more they cried, Hallelujah! The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah! And from the throne came a voice crying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty thunder peals, crying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted to her to be clothed with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen and the is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb is the Mass. Right? That is where the renewal of the covenant between God and man takes place, at the Mass. Right? It's all the fulfillment of the covenant, which is the embodiment of what marriage is. And the relationship between Christ and the church is the, the symbol 
the goal for which husband and wives are to strive towards in their own marriage, right? The faithfulness, the willingness to suffer and to sacrifice for your bride and for your bridegroom, right? Okay, went a little bit over, got a little bit of a late start. Um, but if anybody has any questions, I'll certainly take a few. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, a sticky one. Uh, the, the Greek word there is porneia, where we get the word pornography. Uh, there's a couple of different interpretations of that. Uh, the one instance is the idea of, of uh, degrees of consanguinity, you know, how closely related you are to somebody. But if, because if, you know, like a brother and sister try to marry each other, the church would say that is invalid because of that. Um, and there are others that view this more in a general sense of any kind of impediment to the marriage itself. So something that's in the way of uh, a valid marriage taking place. You know, the, the church hasn't come down and, and you know, minutely defined the, the actual means of that, but those are the, the most common interpretations that are taken by the church, yeah. Don't some translations use the word unlawful? Yes, yeah, but the Greek word is porneia, you know. Uh, unchastity is probably a, a better translation of it. Anybody else? Yeah, I was just wondering. We go from Adam and Eve and Cain and Abel. Yeah. And then we have a whole mess of people all of a sudden. I mean, how does Cain get it? Right. Well, and if you look at the first um, 11 chapters, there's huge gaps and generations of people, long time that takes place until we get to Abraham and then things are kind of focused down on his family. But So that's consistent with all of this. Yeah. Alright, let's end with a prayer here. In the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. God our Father, you have filled the hungry with the good things of heaven. Keep in mind your infinite compassion. Look upon our poverty and let us share the riches of your life and love. We ask this through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.